Welcome to Reboot Republic, a podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. We're delighted to be joined back on the podcast, pushing up his ranking even further, Michael Taft, economist with uh, SIP2, who is back on again. Michael, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here, Rory. And listen, I was uh, texting you there during the week asking, would you come on? And you said you were in some sort. You actually said, well, I will if I, I don't know where the hell you said you were. And I was like, what is that? I didn't even know it was the name of a place. But listen, you're uh, talking to us from uh, the uh, sweltering Portugal. How are things there? Well, I'm in the, um, I'm in Seychelles. Uh, it's a, a town on the uh, Teju estuary. About a 20-minute uh, ferry ride from Lisbon. Uh, it's a beautiful town. Uh, it was a bit hot, 40 degrees when we got here. It's supposed to cool off to a uh, 35 degrees eventually. So, you know, it's going to be warm. You take it easy. But one of the upsides of this place is that it's had a communist mayor since 2013, and the majority on the local authority is the Communist Party. And we uh, went and had a sandwich at the local communist club last night. So it, it, it really is all good. <laughs> good man, good man. So uh, unfortunately, the left can't control the weather, uh, even though they can do lots of other wonderful things. But um, the, yes, and of course, I'm talking to you from uh, good old Dublin, where um, I am uh, not uh, traveling anywhere this year due to astronomical childcare and other costs. Um, and also the thought of traveling with a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, and an eight-year-old on a plane is just beyond anything. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> you know, Why would you do it to yourself? Why would you? <laughs> so, I great. I, I always love these days when it's warm in Ireland and you can gloat to everybody away and go, oh, look how nice it is here. Ha ha, you're missing it. And they just go, yeah, Rory, whatever. Um, so, listen, but of course, there's a, a much more serious uh issue behind all of those temperatures, which is climate and climate change and the uh, serious suffering that is going on in the continent. And we're going to hit crazy temperatures here, supposedly next week, supposedly hitting over 32 degrees, um, again, showing the need for major, major action on climate. Um, Michael, listen, here to talk to you too, not unconnected, um, the whole issue of cost of living and the cost of living crisis and what could be done. And of course, I was thinking there right now, we're not uh, faced with high energy costs in terms of our heating bills. We'll be hit with them uh, coming seriously in, um, you know, I suppose as, as things change, the weather changes in September. And that's when there's a real crisis ahead of us. Obviously, there's fuel costs, there's general food costs. Every costs are, are, are literally um, through the roof. In terms of your analysis, Michael, where is this going? Where are we going with, with inflation? The, we heard the Taoiseach saying potentially um, next year, middle next year, we could be there could be easing it, but things are going to be very bad this winter. What's your assessment? Well, there's two things. First off, nobody knows. That's, that's, that's a critical thing. Usually, uh, usually you, you, you have a window of two or three years where you can make reasonable predictions. In this case, uh, all the attempts to make predictions have failed uh, because of the escalating nature of the crisis, because you, you have a crisis of uh, uh, not only the post-pandemic uh, bump, which was always going to see a temporary inflation uh, as people unwind their savings and start spending it. You know, that wouldn't have caused too much problem, problem because that would have been temporary and washed out. But then uh, the uh, the impact of the interruptions in the international supply chains. This is uh, a matter of capacity. 
there was an underestimation of the capacity to get supply back up to previous levels and also the continuing impact of COVID. And people will know this just from their own personal experience. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get out of Ireland, uh, Aer Lingus is uh, canceling trips because of COVID. Uh, goods can't move through ports quickly enough because of uh, absent abstentions, uh, you know, people not being able to go to work because of COVID. So you have that twofold uh, process hitting the uh, supply chains. And thirdly, of course, the war in Ukraine uh, uh, and those type of geopolitical concerns. So I think it's safe. The safest bet would be to assume that we are going to be in a relatively high inflationary environment for the next two to three years. When I say relatively high, it may not be as high now, although it doesn't look like we have actually, you know, uh, hit the maximum. Uh, we could see inflation rise over the next um, uh, couple of months, hit 10%. But, you know, that will ease off, hopefully, next year and the following year. But you still may be faced with inflation rates of uh, 4 5 6%, which are well above what happened uh, coming out of the recession and up to the pandemic, where in cases, some cases, I mean, inflation was zero. So the best thing is to plan for a relatively high inflationary environment and then to mold your policies around that environment. Yeah, this is an unprecedented, you know, we, we obviously talk a lot here about poverty, about inequality, the housing issue, housing costs. Um, you know, childcare, all sorts of issues uh, under funding of public services. But this really, this inflation is an, an unprecedented cost of living crisis, isn't it? Well, all inflation is different. I mean, we had, you know, huge inflation back in the 70s. Uh, our inflation rate was higher than the EU average uh, in the noughties, you know, and from 2000 to 2007. A large part of that, of course, was the uh, pushing up of costs because of uh, housing. Yeah. Uh, but we've kind of lived with it. We've had this kind of inflation thing, but there's no doubt this particular type of inflation uh, 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 is unique because there's all sorts of factors coming into it. Now, I thought it was interesting that Jay Powell, who is chair of the, the U.S. Fed, which is the U.S. Central Bank, uh, Federal Reserve System, uh, made a comment that he said, we now know how little we know about the causes of inflation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you ask uh, five economists, uh, what's the main cause of inflation? You get 15 different answers. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just that type of phenomenon. Yeah. So uh, I think there's one thing we do know, uh, though we may not be able to assess the impact, is that this is a supply side crisis. It's not a crisis caused by wages. It's not a crisis caused by domestic demand. Uh, it is a supply side uh, 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 issue. And what that means is that the inflation is coming from, again, uh, the uh, uh, capacity uh, uh, of certain sectors to uh, uh, provide and, the goods yeah. and services that are needed. Yeah. So, and of course, it, it, it's multi, like, as you say, like, in terms of the inflation, we look at like it's food. You know, the basic food, uh, you know, basic things like milk, bread. It is, you know, cost of fuel, cost of petrol, diesel at the pumps. It is energy costs. You know, we've 
had a rental, you know, inflation going on for years. You know, I said renters are in a cost of survival, not just a cost of living crisis. That it's so many aspects of what ordinary people are living on, and um, is why it's hitting it's hitting people so hard. Um, there is also a factor which, um, you know, many people know, you know, anecdotally or there's price gouging going on that of course there are inflationary costs and we know that there is a reality as you're saying that there's all these factors like supply um you know that accessing and and you know be it the petrol station the hotelier the restaurant the shop tesco the the food that they're ordering or the goods that they're ordering or the products they're ordering are increasing in price on a wholesale basis but what they're charging customers there's also profit gouging going on isn't there there must be or do you think businesses are taking the costs of the the increase in uh in inflation yeah there probably is the the problem is how to measure it let's take yeah. a step back and maybe we can get to because i think that's actually an important point because you hear a lot of this stuff about oh we've got to watch out for the wage price spiral can't ask for too many way too much in the way of wage increase because that will embed inflation into the into the economy and you get this wage price spiral. But yeah. no one talks about a profits price spiral. Absolutely. So let's take a couple of steps back. First off, yeah. on on the main impacts of inflation, it really starts with energy. That's where it started, and that drives costs throughout you know the economy. You know, if it costs uh, more to um, <clears throat> Uh, uh, for energy inputs into uh, factories or offices or transport, that percolates in through the high food prices, uh, not necessarily causing all of it, but it's energy where it starts. And to give you one little simple statistic, in the last year, electricity prices went up by 40% in Ireland. Yeah. In France, they went up by 6%. Oh. Um. And the reason why is very early on, France put in effective price controls on their electricity sector. A number of countries are now introducing energy price controls. Recently, yeah. Spain and Portugal have introduced it quite targeted. In some cases, they're quite targeted, not across the board. But because of their measures, about half of consumers will see a reduction in their electricity and gas bills of 40 percent. Wow. Uh, in, in Hungary, they introduced price controls earlier this year, and electricity and gas fell by about 20%. Uh, look at uh, Malta. It's really interesting. They told their electricity uh, company, they have the main electricity company, which is state-owned, uh, much like it is here in ESB, but state-owned. They said they told them to freeze their prices back to 2014 levels. So infl electricity inflation over the last year in Malta has been zero. And as a consequence, if you take a look going back to France, if you take a look at what's happening with general inflation, they're at about a little over 5%. Okay, that's still very high. That's yeah. a long ways away from 8 to 9%. So, you know, while so much of the debate is uh, focused on, you know, how much we can give to households, uh, how much we can cut excise or that and yeah. all that, maybe we can get into those things. In other words, a kind of a redistributional approach. Yeah. Uh, what we actually should be doing is looking at the functioning of the market. We, it's time that we bring in price controls. Actually, the Tonister told the Dole last year that his department was examining 
maximum price orders. That's what would be called here in Ireland, the maximum price order, uh, uh, which would put a cap on prices. But I've heard nothing since then. So, you know, first off, hit where you can the most, the biggest uh, 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 contributor to inflation, which is energy. And as you said, okay, gas prices, not so much a problem now, but wait till October, November. Uh, uh, ESB recently announced gas prices increase of nearly 30%. Yeah. That's not going to impact so much now, uh, but it will have a huge impact. Right now is the time to bring in those price controls. So that, that, that's, uh, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the first thing. But secondly, but, uh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just think on that one, I, I'm not sure if is, is the second point related to the price controls on energy and electricity, because I think what you're saying there is very significant. And I, I, I didn't know that. And I'm sure many listeners won't either that, you know, these other countries like Malta and France and Hungary are, are, are implementing actual controls of prices. I had heard about France maintaining um, the low level of you know prices. But if you look at, as you're saying there, electricity and gas, so what would that mean doing in Ireland? Would that mean turning around to our energy suppliers and saying our electricity suppliers, our gas suppliers, and saying you cannot increase prices anymore or you must reduce them by 10% or what would you do? There's a number. There's a number of ways of going at it. You know, there's not one particular way. And what you want to do is you want to find the the most economically efficient uh, way of introducing uh, uh, the the these controls, knowing that these controls are actually only temporary during the period of this crisis. So yeah. they could be called tactical price controls. We're not looking to permanently. Though, mind you, I will say this, and you mentioned climate change earlier. As we phase out of fossil fuels and into renewable energies, we cannot assume that the market will automatically supply the renewable energy at the same amount as the withdrawal of fossil fuels. Yeah. In other words, you know, that, that, they that, could that up could the price. Be. So we could see price volatility for different reasons. We could see price volatility going on for a very long time as we make this long-term transition into renewables. So there might well be an argument for while only having tactical price controls at this moment to deal with this particular emergency to maintain the infrastructure and the regulation. Yeah. And it all comes back to treating energy as a public good. It is a public good. It is so vital to the functioning of uh, uh, business, uh, to households, to the to to the uh, wider uh, economy. What are you so, talking about? Energy is a public good, Michael. Energy is there for uh, energy companies and gas companies to make money from, and deliver a service. It's a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, the um, IEA, the International Energy Authority, said that uh, they estimate that across Europe, uh, uh, energy companies were overcharging by about two hundred billion euros. And uh, we we can't assume that that's happening in Ireland. But, you know, you know, probably just possibly likely in the Wild West possibly, possibly. of Europe that uh, we've been overcharged for something. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, 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 there is this this overcharging uh, happening. But I want to come to the second element. You were talking about price gouging and profiteering. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Now, one of the problems in, in, in attempting to measure the level of profits in the Irish economy is that they are di distorted by multinational accounting practices in the same yeah. way that our GDP is distorted. 
a number of data are distorted. So, I mean, you can look at this profit level in Ireland and it's, it's way off the charts. And it's a lot of it's fictional. It's accountancy things. But a couple, a couple of things that should actually uh, uh, give us some pause and consider this issue of profits. In the U.S., the Economic Policy Institute uh, uh, estimated that about 60% of the price increases in the U.S. were from increased profits. In other words, profit gouging. Uh, Unite the Union in Britain used that same methodology and applied it to Britain, and they found a similar 50 to 60% of the price increases were coming from uh, profits. And if you look at the EU as a whole, probably the EU might be a little bit different than Britain or America, uh, because Britain and America, you know, they're quite liberal economies. Yeah. Uh, but in, in, in the two years over the pandemic, profits increased by 12% and wages increased by 6% in the EU. So we probably shouldn't assume that we're uh, uh, any, any different from that. Uh, so uh, when you hear this talk about wage price spiral, just remember there are three components to prices, obviously wages. Uh, secondly, the input costs, you know, the input costs for any business. Uh, and thirdly, profits. And if profits go up, prices will go up. And every once in a while, the CEOs in their in their uh, uh, their Zoom meetings with investors, when they produce these quarterly reports, sometimes they let the mask slip a bit, and they say, you know, we're achieving optimal price uh, price efficiency during this period uh, of inflation. Well, that's code word for meaning they're going to push that profit as far as they can. In, in other words, to dr to drive up uh, uh, their profit levels. So it would be helpful, I think, that if we could find a way uh, to uh, adjust uh, Irish data uh, to what would be normal data, uh, it would be interesting to see at what level have profits been rising as opposed to wages. And I suspect we're not that far away from EU norms and possibly not even from American and UK norms. So in terms of actually um, dealing with this crisis now, Michael, you've set out there, and I, I think there's a lot of logic to it, and I would agree, that we need price controls on energy costs, gas, electricity. Uh, the government needs to step in and introduce controls on those. Um, secondly, then, what about um, wages? You know, what, what have, you know, because we're seeing now inflation, as you say, 10%. Wage increases of anything between zero and, um, you know, maybe four percent. So there's a real already essential, you know, reduction in people's living standards yeah. in their real um income because inflation is significantly outstripping their wages, their income, uh, the inflation. So what do we do in terms of wages? We have David McWilliams arguing that we should have wage increases. I heard him there recently on the radio. So if David McWilliams is arguing for it, surely it must be, uh, why aren't the government doing it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if David Mack is, you know, uh, uh, you know le leading the proletariat counterattack, uh, let's fall in behind him, you know. Uh, good <laughs> stuff. <clears throat> um, uh, well, actually... Again, the, one of the chief economists at the IMF, when asked this question about wage price spiral, she said, nah, they didn't see it. And even if wages did rise, it would just mean less profits. 
So if you have a period of profit gouging, uh, wage increases uh, would actually lower the profits and not impact on price at all. There's no evidence that wage increases will feed into this. To give you an idea, if wages were raised or if wages were cut, it wouldn't make a bit of difference to the cost of energy, which is set at international levels. You know, you're not going to produce more oil or more gas because you've cut wages here. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter whether you raise wages or cut wages. It's not going to impact on the cost of fertilizer, which is tied to petrol, uh, tied to you know energy. Uh, the cost of steel, which has gone through the roof and would impact on building costs. Or, or uh, shipping costs, which obviously is an exporting nation, impacts us, uh, you know, uh, uh, significantly. Uh, shipping costs are like eight, nine times the level they were pre-pandemic. Increasing or cutting wages will have no impact on those uh, uh, those impact I- I- inputs. But two things: one, again, the Tanishta, uh, uh, uh probably one of his more unguarded moments, going a little bit off script. He did say earlier this year that wages are part of the solution. He's correct. They are part, one part, and they're part of the solution. So um, uh, what the government can do is when the budget is announced in early September and they claim they're going to bring forward uh, increased social protection payments, probably to the beginning of October, they should also increase the minimum wage to compensate for uh, uh, what's happened uh, during this year and make a significant increase in the minimum wage uh, next year. Germany is increasing their minimum wage from €9.82 an hour to €12, and they're doing that in one year. If we were to increase our minimum wage to €12, we'd actually be starting off from a higher base, so it wouldn't have as much impact. But what it would do is it doesn't just impact on people on the minimum wage. It impacts on hundreds of thousands that are above. And the great thing about giving people on lower incomes, whether they're on fixed incomes, on social protection or on low pay, is if you give them support, they will in turn go and spend that money in the economy, uh, which means that we will able, be able to sustain consumer spending, which could likely take a hit as people become more nervous about spending, understandably, households start to save again. We've seen evidence of that. And that would impact negatively on especially domestic SMEs uh, uh, and their employees. So we can do a number of things with wages, starting with actually increasing the wage floor. When you increase the wage floor, everybody above that goes up. So that would certainly uh, be a significant and uh, a helpful intervention by the government. And just in terms of then the wider economy and wages, what do you think should happen in terms of, um, you know, the, yeah, basically, is this a key aspect that we should have wage increases across the board? We should have wages increases across the board, and there's a really good way, a really good way to facilitate that. And that's by giving power to workers in the workplace to do just that by giving them the right to collective bargaining. Workers in other countries have that right. Uh, You know, it's not about the state setting wages, you know, in this manufacturing company or in this uh, 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 transport company or in this construction company, you know, have confidence that workers themselves can do that. Give them the tools 
to drive up their wages, notably the right to collective bargaining. That was sure, Michael, anybody in Ireland in any workplace can go join a union if they want. Yes, they can join a union if they want, but the employer doesn't have to recognize uh, the fact that they're in the union. The employer does not have to recognize the trade union as the agent of the workers in that workplace. They are not required to engage with them. They are not required to negotiate in good faith. None of that. None of that. So, yeah, I can join a union, but that doesn't mean that it's going to automatically uh, uh, automatically mean that I have collective bargaining rights. I'm just throwing it back to you on what they would say, of course. I, I know that I'm saying it. Uh, in a, I mean, okay, okay. Yeah, being a bit mischievous there. Anyway, it explains, exactly. the, explains the point. Everyone I, has I, 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 rights. I, I would yeah. say, like, why do you think they haven't introduced collective bargaining? Because it's a, you know, it's, it's, so many countries in Europe have it. Like, I just... Well, uh, you know, I mean, this is what happens when you have... Um, uh, parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who are beholden to business interests. Business doesn't want it. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael don't want it. Now, there is a high-level committee currently uh, um, uh, currently active, and I think they will be reporting soon uh, on new measures under collective bargaining. And I know, you know, this is involving ICTU, IBEC, and the government. So we'll see what comes out of that. But I think that at the end of the day, the right to collective bargaining is an issue of political economy and must be addressed in a political way. Uh, it will be very difficult to negotiate a new regime out of the current structure. But as to why we don't have it, well, why don't we have free health care? Uh, why don't we have fully free education? Why don't we have uh, uh, strong public services? Uh, why don't we have, uh, you know, public housing that provides not only just for people who don't have work, but also people in work, a strong public housing sector uh, uh, to to reduce rents. Uh, it all comes back to politics. You know. It does, absolutely. And the continued pursuit of neoliberal politics and free market politics and the ideology of the market. And of course, that's been the point that, you know, this cost of living crisis, why it hits, and I, I kind of, you know, this hasn't, I haven't seen it raised too much in in the debate, is that, Ireland is disproportionately impacted by the cost of living crisis, by the energy costs, um, than other European countries because we have we are so reliant on the market provision, and we have discussed this so many times, Michael. The market provision, things like childcare. You know, we face highest childcare costs yeah. in Europe. Healthcare, similarly, much higher costs of healthcare. Even within education, we face much higher costs. Um, God, I can tell you with three kids going to school, it's, you know, books, contributions, all these different costs, even healthcare, like in terms of when your child turns seven, you're no longer entitled to, you know, GP care. It's, um, you know, anything happens at all. It's, it's cost. The, um, you know, then you've got transport costs. We look at our, I was looking actually for um, my uh, new book, which is uh, coming out. This is my first Official announcement of it in September. It's called, Michael, you get the big reveal. It's called Gaffs, Why No One Can Get a House and What We Can Do About It. All right. Okay. I'm, I'll be waiting in the queue at midnight. Good <laughs> man. Good man. You and I hope that, well, you won't, you know, you can actually pre-order it, Michael. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I like the, the whole ritual of standing outside the bookshop, you know, uh, whether well, it's Tolkien or Harry Potter or Rory Hearn, you know, I mean, 
<laughs> that's the way. That's the way. But um, that we actually are housing um, because of the poor standard of our housing. We have the our energy consumption in our homes is significantly higher than the EU average. Yeah. So therefore, um, another example that the energy costs, which are, as you were pointing out, disproportionately hitting us here, they're also people are consuming more energy, which means they have to pay more, not just in terms of the actual price per unit, but the overall consumption level of it as well. Um, but the the other point, you know, the, the wider point is that, yeah, we don't have, and housing, the most obvious one, we're paying the highest rents in Europe. And so this cost of living crisis is particularly I would argue it's probably the worst in Europe, in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I, I, suppose, I suppose, I mean, already the central bank has uh, published data on whatever about kind of the, gen, you know, the average inflation rate, say, of 8% or whatever it might be across the economy. It's going to be 9 10% possibly higher for those on lower incomes. Yeah. Uh, and that's a function, of course, that they uh, spend more, say, say, on energy. Uh, uh, as a proportion of their income. And a part of that is they need to consume more energy, uh, uh, to main, you know, to maintain a, a warm house. Or in many cases, they don't. They, they turn off the heater. Yeah. They turn off the heat and go yeah. around in blankets and sweaters. And people and, do. People are doing that. I will be yeah. doing that this winter. Um, but it, 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 that comes back to this thing about, you know, you were, uh, talking about the, you know the way we do economics, and I'm not talking just about economics, but the way we do economics, because you can do economics in a different way, and you can measure it a different way. Uh, but even the EU Commission get, gave its frustration, and when it was, there was some analysis they did of um, uh, 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 housing across across Europe, but they said that our current models do not factor in uh, the benefit of lower consumption of energy going out over three or four decades. As you know, Rory, when, you know, a local authority or a developer builds a house, um, there's a depreciation of that, say, over 50 years. Exactly. You know, because how, they, how long they, does it take to, to repay that over 50 years? So with the local authority, they get rents in for 50 years. And this is, you know, the depreciation of that maintenance cost, the value of it, you know, and they try to measure that in 50 years. But what they... Don't do as, but what they don't do, sometimes they don't do that very well. Uh, although the Department of Finance did use those kind of calculations to show that it was far more cost effective to build, you know, local authority homes and rent it out rather than go through the housing assistance, uh, payment. But what they also don't do is what happens if you build those new homes or refurbish those homes to the highest possible energy standard? You should also factor in the energy consumption in that home as well. Because if you have a home that's just, you know, uh, we have an old home, we've got to get it retrofitted. You know, it's, it's very low in terms of its energy efficiency. But, you know, if we then uh, uh, retrofitted it um, uh, and then going forward over 50 years, the savings on energy would be huge. So, We've got to we've got to have an economics that factors in not just the standard type of well this is how much it costs and this is how much we'll have to pay and this is how much taxes we have to raise we have to factor in a whole number of things such as energy consumption standard of living illnesses reduced in the house because exactly. it's yeah. a, 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 it's a better household 
And yes, I mean, I'm sorry, people's life quality matters. And even though some economists are trying to do it with this kind of, you know, well-being kind yeah, of economic yeah, study and all that, yeah. it's still early days. But damn it all, if uh, if the goal of economics is not to raise the quality of life of people in in society, then economics has no goal outside of just, you know, it's, it, it, it's uh, everyone for themselves. Yeah, no, no. And there is an increased move within economics to, um, as you say, look at the issue of well-being and well-being indicators and extend out beyond GDP and measures of that. But just one, one final one, um, because uh, I, I'm going to have you back uh, very soon again to because of this issue of cost of living and we're going to be in the run up to the budget. Um, which has moved early and, and there is a real need to identify solutions. And, and I think your call for the price controls on, on electricity um, and gas is really, really significant and important um, and particularly will be more so, but what, what we can actually do. But a last one, because I actually think a solution and proposal that I've been making for quite a while, and we, we myself and yourself have discussed this idea over and back um since um, I was thinking, actually, I was speaking at a Raise the Roof meeting in um, Maynooth last week, and I was looking back at the last time I spoke at a trade union um, supported meeting. Well, not the last time, but one of the first times around the housing crisis. But do you remember, Michael, we organized, um, I, I was involved in organizing and SIPTU supported the conference in Liberty Hall in 2015. Yes. Seven years ago around yes. the housing crisis as we saw it then and you know the rising homelessness and and um but anyway one of of the ideas that that uh, we have been discussing is the question of a state construction company a state development housing company um and it's something that i've been promoting and i would have even thought that actually the the inflation and the rising cost of materials in construction because we're seeing now you know the the talk and actually happening the builders pausing developments um because they're unsure in terms of economic uncertainty and the housing shortage actually going to become even worse and we're also seeing horrendous i, I write about it in the irish examiner today um atrocious figures in terms of social housing delivery like really 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 poor and um, way way less than any of um the targets that government is setting that if you were a state construction company, number one, you would have your construction workers in place. So you wouldn't be trying to uh, facing this whole issue of shortage and we could hire them. That would actually um, provide an element of control on wages because you would be providing proper contracts, proper wages. Um, but also you would be guaranteeing your capacity to deliver it. You would also have this economy of scale to purchase on wholesale markets. And you would also know what the hell it costs to build and not be relying on um, the private sector. But most importantly, you would have a capacity. So when now we're seeing the market deciding now, well, actually, it's not really profitable for us potentially to build. We find it more difficult to raise finance. You know, we're going to see even worse supply that this is the time now for a state construction company. But on Twitter, I am annihilated by what I think is largely probably right-wing trolls, but, but you know, lots of people going, oh my God, look at the HSC, look at, um, you know, the public sector. Can you imagine if you had a public construction company, the world would end? The world wouldn't yeah, end. Yeah, would yeah, well, uh, luckily, not even Cohen and Gale bought into those nonsensical arguments. They were accused of being Marxist when they set up the ESB. And we saw <laughs> yeah, what the ESB that, did. Yeah. 
The ESB was the foundation of the modern economy in Ireland. You know, just let's, you know, before the ESB was set up, you had 115 electricity companies and only 15% of the buildings uh, were were supplied with electricity. Yeah. Only 15%. So, you know, you had this wonderful competitive thing, 115 companies. Wow, that's fantastic. Only 15% of the buildings. So the uh, Comley Gale uh, set up ESB and the rest is history. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, the, the one thing, I mean, all those things you listed are the positives for having a state construction company. Now, let's be clear. A state construction company as a public enterprise must act uh, uh, like a market operator. In other words, the state can't exactly. subsidize it. Exactly. It would be a semi-state agency like Yeah, that's right. A, it, a it's a public entity. enterprise company that competes in the market just like the uh, uh, ESB does, just like a number of other public enterprises do. And, you know, it's kind of sink or swim. But I think all those things that you said were important because there is a different governance issue. Uh, there can be a different issue in terms of relation uh, to having sustainable supply chain. And when I mean sustainable supply chains, ones that ensure proper pay, because one of the problems in construction is that, okay, you may have the main company that's, you know, well-organized and proper paid, but the supply, the companies that they rely well, on input. Focus self-employment, Martin McMahon goes yeah. on about it. It is rife in the industry. Absolutely. But the one of the, also, let's not forget one of the main uh, benefits of a well-run, well-organized public enterprise company is that it is investment-driven. Because it does not have uh, to meet um, a shareholder return targets yeah. on a quarterly basis or an annual basis. In other words, they're free of that. They can they can take those resources that you know that profit. Nothing wrong with the word profit because that's what investments are paid out of. Uh, uh, to take the profit that they make and invest that back into the company and particularly to invest in the more cutting-edge technologies in construction, which can actually reduce the cost of construction uh, over time. We're quite backward in the way uh, we uh, actually build buildings uh, compared to, to, to other uh, EU countries. And by the way, even, even the building industry recognizes this. So if you have a company that's uh, uh, investing in uh, whether it's uh, kind of precast products, whether it's kind of, you know, build the foundation inside, you know, inside a building and then transport that to the place, uh, whatever it might be, use of timber. Timber is far more ecologically uh, beneficial. Uh, that's why in the Nordic countries, though much colder, they use timber. In other words, yeah. you can experiment and invest and put money into uh, research and development uh, in terms of getting the best uh, environmental deal out of the building and the most cost-effective way and doing that with good wages uh, with sustainable supply chains. In other words, it lifts the game of every other competitor in the market because all of a sudden this company sets a new benchmark that everybody has to come up to. Now, it has to actually be commercially viable, but I don't, I don't see that as a problem, uh, uh, being commercially viable. Because Absolutely one of the not. things no. is you don't have to uh, you don't have to satisfy uh, shareholder demands that yeah. you are just committed to your company, reinvesting in it, uh, research and design, 
and a, a governance structure that actually is inclusive of the workers rather than continually pushing them away and treating them as some kind of enemy within. Absolutely. So yes, yes. I mean, I suppose your book is going to uh, have a chapter on the housing construction company. It's it's in there. The the proposal is in there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this, Rory. I will keep a watch out on your Twitter page the next time you mention construction company. If any of these trolls come in on you, I'll I'll I'll, I'll be there. I'll have your back. Cheers, Michael. I appreciate that. Listen, Michael. Enjoy the rest of your break, and thanks so much for giving up your time. Uh, to come on Reboot Republic today and chat to us um, and set out a alternative economic perspective and analysis of the cost of living crisis and what can be done. Uh, really appreciate it and hope to have you back on again soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Rory. Cheers, really Michael. Enjoy. Michael Taft there, um, economist with SIP2 and um, always great, great insights and analysis. Um, and listen, we really appreciate those listeners who are patrons who support us um, to keep the lights on here. We know it's a really, really hard time for so many of you out there. Um, but if you can uh, cover the price of a coffee, um, go over to patreon.com um, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and become a patron of Reboot Republic. Help us to keep this podcast going. Um, it does cost to produce, produced by Tony Groves. Um, and thank you to Tony for producing and all the work he puts in. Um, he also set this up from his uh, little away um, stint staycation in Ireland. Um, and thanks so much to Michael for joining us. Thank you to listeners. Please, as we always ask, share this around on social media if you can. Um, on Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook, put it around. Just share a link to the podcast um, from Spotify, wherever you're listening to it. Just let people know you're listening. Um, and yeah, cheers. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you all soon. <laughs>